This past week, I received a uh, phone call from a woman who wanted an opening joke for a function where she was to be the guest speaker. <laughs> Why she called me, I have no idea. But, uh, but I could tell from the conversation, um, as I continue to repeat it and, and try to get her to repeat the punchline, and, and we went back and forth, it turned into about a 45-minute conversation. But uh, one thing that did remind me, it reminded me of how dangerous it can be to try to tell a joke that you heard told by another. Give you an illustration. Not long ago, a large uh, seminar was being held for ministers in training, and among the speakers were many well-known uh, motivational speakers. One such uh, boldly approached the pulpit and gathering the crowd's attention, he said, the best years of my life were spent in the arms of a woman that wasn't my wife. And there was a hush that went over the audience. After a few minutes, he said, and that woman was my mother. And everyone breathed a sigh of relief. And then he went on and he gave a speech which went over very well. And about a week later, one of the ministers that was sitting in the audience thought, you know what, that's what I need to do. I need to try to kind of liven things up a little bit. And I think what I'll do is I'm going to tell that story. So he approaches the pulpit one sunny, sunny, uh, one sunny Sunday. He tries to rehearse the joke in his head, but it gets a little bit foggy and he's confused and he's kind of botching up the punchline. He's not real sure what to say or what to do. So he gets to the microphone. He says, the greatest years of my life were spent in the arms of another woman that wasn't my wife. The congregation is shocked. They've never heard him say anything like this. And about 10 seconds later, he just goes, and they're all waiting and waiting. He goes, and I, and I can't remember who she was. <laughs> so anyway, take it for what it's worth. Ah. Hey, have you seen, by the way, I just thought I'd bring this up right now before I get into the rest of what I'm here to do. But um, have you seen that great commercial where the, the lady singing opera? And the phone rings in, in the audience. Did you see that? You remember? Do you see when she grabs the spear and throws it at him? All right, good. That's all I got to say about that. Today we're going to begin a, a new series of messages that will focus our attention on how to be right with God. How to be right with God. That's going to be the theme of this new series. On May 24th, 1738. A discouraged missionary went, as he put in his journal, very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London. There a miracle took place. In his journal he writes, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and save me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was John Wesley. And the message he heard that evening was the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And what's interesting about it was just a few months before, John Wesley had written again in his journal, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? That evening in Aldersgate Street, his question was answered. And the result was the great Wesleyan revival that swept England and it transformed the nation. Paul's epistle to the Romans is still transforming people's lives even today. Just the way it transformed Martin Luther and John Wesley. And the one scripture above all 
others that brought Luther out of mere religion into the joy of a relationship with God and knowing how to be right with God and live right before God. It was found in Romans 1, verse 17, where it says, And the just shall live by faith. The Protestant Reformation and the Wesleyan Revival were both uh, the fruit of this wonderful letter that was written by the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. And he sent the letter by hand to, by a lady named Phoebe, who we'll see in the book of uh, Romans in chapter 16. But he sent this letter to those believers in the city of Rome. And I stopped, and as I was thinking about this, I thought, at this point, I'd like all of us to stop and to think about something very seriously and to kind of digest it for a few moments. But that is this truth. You and I are going to read and study the same inspired letter that brought life and power to such men as Martin Luther and John Wesley. After they studied the book of Romans, neither men would ever be the same again. What's exciting to me about that is the same Holy Spirit who taught them will also teach us. You see, the Word of God is living. The Word of God is eternal. The Word of God is timeless. Regardless of what goes on in our culture or society or what men want us to try to believe, it's God's word and his word alone that'll stand forever. It's the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word of God that as, as the word of God goes forth, it's God's word and his spirit that convicts our hearts when we're not right before God, who teaches us great truths about God, who corrects us when we're wrong in the way we think and the way we live and the way that we act. It says, no, don't do it this way, but you need to do it God's way, and that's this way. And we live in a world today that's very confused, and all we need to do, all one needs to do is look around us. It's the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to separate bone from marrow and convict the very hearts and understands the intention of each one of our own thoughts and our souls. See, it's God's word as it's preached that causes people like you and like me, sometimes like you, to come to me and say, hey, has my wife been talking to you? Say, no, I don't even know who you are. And I don't know who your wife is. And you walk away and go, wow, then what's this all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. It's all about God. And it's all about his spirit. And it's all about his word. And his word goes out and accomplishes God's purposes, never to come back void or empty. See, it's God, God's word that will convict us and penetrate our hearts even as we sit here today and even as I prepare and even as I speak. It's God's word that this is all about. That's what we're here to study. And it's, this God, and it's this word of God that men like Martin Luther and John Wesley sat down and began to study. And they were never the same again because of what God taught them through his word. And it's the word of God upon which we must stand. Because the Bible says that the purpose of the word of God is not only to correct us and to train us and, and to teach us and to rebuke us. Uh, but it also is, and not only that, but it's to train us in righteousness. Which has to do with how to be right with God and how to live a life that's right and pleasing before God. And the purpose of all of it is so that every one of us will be adequately equipped to do the work that God has called us to do before the very foundation of the world. And as we look at this, you and I can experience the same revival in our hearts, and in our homes, and in our churches, and in our nation. If the message of this letter grips us just as it had gripped men of faith in centuries past. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. If not, share with the person next to you. But we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. In this introduction, we're going to see what God has to teach us in the way of how to be right with God. Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 1. 
we read these words. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might attain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In the opening verses of this letter, in fact, verse, verses 1 through 7 are one big, long, it's one big long sentence. It's a mouthful of truth. And in this opening verses, Paul introduces himself to the believers in Rome. Now, some of them he must have already known. We'll see it at the end of the study in, in chapter 16. He greets them by name. So there were those who knew him, possibly those who were at Pentecost when Peter preached the, the message of the gospel, and there were many lives that were changed because of that. And as they left there, they went back to their homes, and assumably they would also go back to Rome. And so there were those who knew him. There were those who had come to know Christ and had gone home to Rome. And as he preached to them, or as he wrote to them, he knew who they were, but there were a lot of people there, obviously, that didn't know who Paul was. And so, as is often the case, Paul introduces himself to the listeners or of the letter that would be read to them in Rome and home churches that were established all throughout the city of Rome. So what he's trying to do is gain some type of link or access to them and explain who he is so that there would be some credibility or explain his credentials so that they would listen to who he is because it would be like, hey, who died and, and, and you know, made you God? I mean, who do you think you are that you're going to tell us what to do? Well, he explains who he is and he explains what his life is all about. And I am guilty, and I'm sure many of you are as well, when I read through the introductions, oftentimes I just kind of buzz through it to get to the meat of what's, what's going to be said. But the problem with that is there's a lot of truth in the introduction. And there's a mouthful of truth when you consider that those first seven verses are one sentence. And so as we look at this, he's going to create a link between his readers and himself, and he's going to begin to explain who he is in three ways. The first thing that he wants them to understand is Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ. His commitment to Jesus Christ. He says, Paul, a bond servant. His commitment is sum, summed up in one word, and that's the word servant. Or in some translations it says bond servant, which is the lowest form of servant. But as, you're writing to, as he's writing to those in Rome, the word that he uses is very meaningful to them. Because it means the, it means the word slave. 
Think about it. He's writing to people who live in a city where at that time it is believed that there were 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. And he introduces himself and he explains his commitment to Jesus Christ by identifying, him, by identifying himself as a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. Which is fascinating when you think about the fact that the majority of people who are slaves or servants wanted one thing more than anything else in life, and that was their freedom. They didn't want to be identified as a slave to so-and-so, a servant of so-and-so, because slaves weren't even looked upon as people. They were nothing more than property. They were owned by their masters. But Paul, in a beautiful word picture that he wants them to gain and to understand, he's saying that I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I am a servant to Christ. And where he got that from is from Exodus chapter 21. Don't forget that Paul was very well versed in the scriptures. He understood the Old Testament. He was a teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He understood the word of God as far as the Old Testament was concerned. And in Exodus 21, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me and look at where he gets the concept or idea of being a servant or a slave to Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 21, starting with verse 2, we read these words. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. So you got the picture of what's going on? If you're a slave, after the sixth year, you're set free on the seventh year. If you were a slave and you were married at the time that you entered into this relationship with your master, and you had a wife at that time, then she would be freed with you. If you had children that entered into that relationship ahead of time, they would be freed. But if the master gave the man a woman and, and they ended up having children, the wife and the children would still be enslaved to the master. But, verse 5, if the, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will, know, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear, and he shall serve him permanently. You follow what's going on? See, what Paul was trying to get his readers to understand is, He's saying, I am committed to Jesus Christ to the point where I love him. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is that you love your neighbor as yourself. But I love the Lord so much that even though he has set me free from sin, I have now enslaved myself to him. I have chosen to be his servant for the rest of my life. And the motivation is that he loved the Lord. But the question for you is, why? Why did he love Jesus so much that he would choose to be his slave or servant to him for the rest of his life? That's a great question. It's one that we need to ask ourselves. And if you turn to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament, Acts Romans, the book right before the book that we're looking at, in Acts chapter 9, we find out why Paul enslaves himself to Jesus. 
He took the position willingly. He took the position voluntarily. In Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1, notice the account that we're given of a drastic change that took place in the life of a man whose name is Saul, who now we know as Paul. But something happened to him that was so radical and so life-changing and transforming that when this took place, he couldn't help being a slave to Jesus Christ. Verse 1, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters. He was seeking permission or authority from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, speaking of those who follow Jesus Christ, and what I like that is because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but through me, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. And then there is the way, and that's the way of God. He's saying the way was those who identified themselves with Christ, they lived a certain way, they believed, a certain, they believed certain truths, and they lived this way of life. Those belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Notice what's going on here. Saul hated Christians. He stood by, and the Bible says, wholeheartedly and applauded at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr that's found in the New Testament. He stood by wholeheartedly applauding what they did. He held their coats for them so that they could pick up rocks and they wouldn't be encumbered by their clothing and they could get a good shot off. He applauded the death of Stephen. And now he went to the synagogue, to the high priest, and said, Hey, I need permission from you. I want letters of authority. I will go out as your emissary, your representative, and I will find anyone, men, women, children, I don't care, anyone who identifies himself with Jesus Christ, and I will bring them back so that the same thing can happen to them that happened to that guy named Stephen. And it came about that as he journeyed, on a way for this, on this mission that he was on. He was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The New King James says, at this point he said, And what shall I do? The Amplified Version says, what do you desire of me? At that point, when Jesus identified himself to Saul, he said, what shall I do for you? What is your desire for my life? What do you want to do with me? He said to him, but arise and enter the city, and it shall be told, it will be told you what you must do. It was this encounter with Jesus Christ that led to Paul's commitment and his love for him. It was here that God revealed his love for him. It was here that, that Saul of Tarsus found mercy before God. He could have been struck dead for what he was doing. He could have been judged for what he was doing. He could have been taken out as quickly as Jesus revealed himself to him is as quick as he could have been taken out from this life and entered the next where he would be judged. He found mercy. He found forgiveness. He would later write to the Romans that but God demonstrated his love for all of us 
And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Say, man, you know what? I was on my way to killing his people. I was in hearty approval of that. I hated Jesus. I hated Christians. I hated the way. I hated anybody that identified with them. I wanted to stamp them out and destroy them. And he knew that. And yet he loved me anyway. We love because he first loved us. God so loved the world, even this Saul of Tarsus, and even every one of us, that he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. That so, so whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Can you imagine what an incredible experience that would be that Jesus reveals himself to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? And at that point, his life was changed forever. At that point, he recognized and understood what he would later write to the church in Corinth. And he said, you know what? You and I have been bought with a price. The very blood of Jesus Christ. So now, therefore, live this life that you live in the flesh. Live it by your faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. We've been bought with a price, so now glorify God in these earthly bodies. Bring him glory. Bring him praise. Do you not understand what he's done for you? See, Paul recognized and understood at that time he was Saul and said, this is, this is, how great a mercy is this? We sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was written by a man who was a slave trader. A man who was set free from the way he treated other people, and yet Jesus Christ died for him as well. And he wrote the words, Amazing Grace, I was once blind, now I can see. He understood there was a day in his life where he was completely in darkness doing things out of ignorance that came natural to him. And in that case, it was persecuting those who he treated as property and not as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. How great a mercy and salvation is this? See, Paul understood, and at that moment in time, he became a new creature. He was born again, Jesus said. He was a new creature. All things passed. All things become new. He took it, whatever was behind him, he just left it behind him. In fact, he would write to the Philippians, hey, whatever is behind, you know what? I forget about it. But I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I forget about my past. I've been set free from my past. I've been freed from all of it. I've been forgiven. Instead of finding justice and judgment, he found mercy and forgiveness. He was never the same afterwards. In fact, it was at that point he said, you know what? What, what do you want to do with my life? What, what should I do for you, Lord? I know. I will become committed to you for the rest of my life. I will be your servant. I will be your slave. And he wore that title proudly and with gladness of heart. He couldn't wait to write to the Romans. He couldn't wait to write to 60 million people who wanted to be free to be able to say, I, I submit myself to Jesus Christ, and I do so gladly. I am a slave to Jesus. I am his servant, and I will serve him the rest of my life. What a wonderful introduction that is. See, that's what drew Paul to Jesus. This is when he committed himself to Jesus Christ, to his master, as a bond servant and as a slave for life. Now we and the readers of this letter to the Romans can understand what it means to be a slave to someone willingly and voluntarily. And I ask myself the question that I now ask you, and that is this. Whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? Do you serve God? Do you serve Jesus Christ voluntarily and willingly being a slave and a servant to him, knowing that you've been bought with a price, knowing that it was through his death on the cross that you and I can avoid the judgment of God 
he would later write to the Romans again, now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The power of his resurrection, the new life that he's given us. Do you serve God or are you more worried about pleasing and serving men? My question for you is this. What has man done for you that Jesus Christ hasn't exceeded by his death on the cross? Paul would write to the Galatians, you know what, I don't, I don't come. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians. I don't come to you trying to please men. I'm here to please God. As a slave and a servant of Jesus Christ, I know my purpose and calling in life is to please God and to him, and to him alone. Now, other men may result, be pleased by the way we live if we're pleasing to God, but the bottom line is his motivation was to please God. Do you live to please God? Do you live to please others? Do you live to please yourself? All of us are serving somebody or something. Do you do it voluntarily or begrudgingly? There's nothing more tragic or pathetic than when I meet Christians who act like it's such a, it, it, that it's such a servitude to live in a way that's pleasing to God. It's almost begrudgingly. Well, I have to. I do this because I have to. I don't really want to. Then don't do it. Because what the world needs to see are more Pauls in the world. People say, hey, I've become a slave to Jesus Christ, and I do it voluntarily, and I do it willingly, not begrudgingly. I can't wait to serve him because I know what he's done for me. That's good stuff. His commitment was summarized in that one word, voluntarily, willingly, freely. God gives each of us the freedom to choose. You can choose this day whom you will serve. And as I said that, I was reminded of the words of Joshua. When he said to the people of Israel, he goes, I don't know about you people, but I do know about me and my family. As of this day, me and my family, we will serve the Lord. As of this day, how about you? Have you ever made that commitment to the Lord? As of this day, I don't know, what is today? February 13th? Lord, you know what? I've never fully understood this, but I do now. As of this day, I will serve you. I will give you myself as your servant for the rest of my life. I am here to serve you and to please you. See, Paul understood his commitment to Jesus Christ. He also, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, he also wanted to identify them in another way. And he uses three words that will stand out. But he wanted to identify himself as a person who was called by God. Paul's calling, verses 1 through 7. He identifies himself, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, he says not only is he a bond servant, but it says he is called as an apostle. He is called as an apostle. Paul was a called apostle. See, this was not his idea. This wasn't his desire. It wasn't an office that he sought. It wasn't a plan that he had. It wasn't something that he could say, you know what, ever since I've been a little kid, this is something I always wanted to do. I think maybe I want to be an apostle one day. He didn't say that. Why? We just learned he was on his way to kill Christians. He couldn't stand them. And he was trying to help his readers understand, you know what? First of all, let me, understand, let me help you understand. I couldn't stand Christians. I hated Jesus. I hated the movement. I hated the way. I hated everything about it. But I am called by God. This wasn't my idea. This is all God's decision. I was intercepted on the road to Damascus, and then God had a new plan for my life. His plan. 
You know, there's a way that seems right, I mentioned, and the end is destruction. There's also, the Bible says that, that man plans his ways, but what? But the Lord directs his steps. And I think each and every one of us can learn something from the life of the Apostle Paul and that many of us have a plan for our life. This is my one-year plan, three-year plan, five-year plan, ten-year plan. We read it in the book of James. Our plan is to go into this city and that city to make so much money, to set up so many offices, to make, you know, to do so much volume. I got a plan. I got a plan. Let me tell you something, and God reinforces it all throughout the Word, and that's this. It's okay to make plans, but you better be open to God's leading in those plans. How many of you have had plans in life, and God stepped in and said, that's not my plan for your life. Here's the direction you're now going to go. I'm standing here as an example. That's not my plan. But God, hey, wait a minute. You're my servant, and you're my slave, and you're going to do what I want you to do, and then you're going to go in the direction I tell you to go. Oh, yeah, that's right, huh? All right, I'm learning. I'm, 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 you know, I'm learning how this is going to work. But see, this wasn't his plan. This wasn't Paul's plan at all. This was God's decision. The word apostle means one who is sent by authority with a commission. You like that? One who is sent by authority with a commission. I love that. Because notice the contrast between a man who was not a man who was opposed to Christ and now a man who was in Christ. He went to get letters of authority to be an emissary to persecute Christians. He was a man with a commission. His commission was, go out and gather up every Christian you can find, let's persecute them. To now, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. Now who is he? He is a man with authority to go out and reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we call it, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples as you go. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to obey and observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus started that commission by saying this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. As Paul and all the rest of the disciples would go and preach and the apostles would go and preach the gospel, they were often asked on many occasions, by whose authority do you deliver this message? Because obviously it wasn't by their authority. They were nothing but fishermen, most of them, or other business people. And it's like, by whose authority do you deliver this message? By the authority of Jesus Christ. I have been called as an apostle to tell you about the gospel of God. That's what he said. He was an apostle. And the, and the uh, interesting thing and, and the principle that, that I get out of this that I want to share with you is one whom God has chosen is the only kind of servant God will use. You follow that? One whom God has chosen is the only kind of servant whom God will use. Why is the church in America so messed up today? Because there are way too many men in ministry who have not been called or chosen by God. It is a business. It is an occupation. It is a profession. It is a career that they have sought on their own strength and in their own power. And even Paul says, I don't do this in my flesh, but I do it in the Spirit of God. This isn't something that I sought out. Not that you can't have a desire to be in ministry, but that desire must be coupled with a calling of God that will then be acknowledged by men. As we look at this, we don't talk much about people who are called into ministry. I love the fact you said that God called us into the mission field. Because when God calls, you can't refuse the call. 
When God calls, you can't hang up the phone. When God calls, you can't hand it to someone else and say, I think this is for you. When God calls, you've got to answer. And Paul said, this isn't my idea. This wasn't my desire. I didn't seek after this. Now, if you're called, there's nothing wrong with being educated and being trained to do what God has called you to do. Don't misunderstand that. But, but you know what? Education is no substitute for calling. There are a lot of people who got degrees, but they've never been called by God. And then they wonder why they're frustrated and the people that sit in the pews listening to them are frustrated and the church is frustrated and the church in America isn't making any inroads in our culture because there's way too many people who are in pulpits that aren't called by God. Because when God calls you, he prepares you. And then he uses you. And then he makes a difference in the world in which he's placed you. Paul turned the world upside down because he was called by God. And this wasn't his own ambition. It was calling by God that was acknowledged by men in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He said this, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I know who I am. I know the gifts God has given me. I know what he's called me to do. And in fact, in Acts chapter 9, if you go back to that a second, you can't miss this, and, he, and Paul certainly couldn't miss it. But in Acts chapter 9, when he said, Lord, what are you going to have me to do? Notice what he says in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You notice that? God's calling was not obscure. It was very clear. And Paul knew that he was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. His responsibility in the kingdom of God was to go and reach non-Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though there were Jews that he would speak to and he certainly wouldn't turn his back on them, his primary calling uh, or responsibility was to go to Gentile nations and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was God's purpose for his life. That's what he did. And that's why the second thing he says is that I'm a preacher. He says, I'm a preacher of the gospel. One of the things that's important to recognize, too, is that a requirement of an apostle was he saw the re- that they would, a person would see the resurrected Jesus. They would see Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And if you know from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes down through a long list of people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to the disciples, he appeared to as many as 500 witnesses, and he says, and last of all, he appeared to me. So he met the qualifications of an apostle. He was one who spent time with the risen Savior. He was a preacher. Verse 1 through 4 says, he was called as an apostle, he was set apart for the gospel. He was set apart. We get our English word horizon from this term. I like this, and I want to share this with you because this will change your life too. The word is horizon. He opens our eyes to a whole new way of living. He opens our eyes. It's not, the Christian life isn't a life of do this, don't do that, got to go to church, got to read my Bible, got to do this no more, can't do this any longer, blah, 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 blah. That's not the Christian life. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life abundantly, to bring joy and contentment and peace. But the word here is used, he came to open or expand our horizons. He came to open our eyes to see God and to see his work in creation, to see God and his work in the life of human beings, to see God in a way that we had never seen it before when our eyes were darkened to understanding of the things of God. He opened our eyes to expand our horizons to where we can see God for who he really is. 
We entered into a new, it's not a life just separated from something. So many of us are confused that we think that as a Christian now I'm separated from. Yeah, we are separated from. But you know what? Dwell on what we're separated to. Paul, as a Pharisee, was separated to the law. Now, as a Christian, he was separated to Jesus Christ. He was separated to Jesus. As believers, we are separated to God. We are, by privilege, we are called children of God to those who believe in his name. Romans 8, Paul says we, call, we can call God Abba or Father or more, even more intimately, Daddy. That we have a personal relationship with the God who created us. It's not about religion anymore. See, that's what religion's all about, very narrow. Salvation is narrow. Jesus said you've got to enter by that narrow gate for the way of destruction is broad. But that's the only thing narrow about Christianity is salvation. Everything else opens our eyes and broadens our horizons to a new way of living. It's exciting. We're, we're saved to a relationship with God. We're saved to eternal life. We're saved to newness of life, the Bible says, to pureness of heart and holiness of character, to righteousness or right living of conduct, to sweetness of temper, to victory over Satan. We're separated to some wonderful things. And God wants to open our eyes and broaden our horizons. I know without even talking to them about what it's like to go into the mission field and see God change lives through the power of the gospel. I know that their eyes are open to a whole new world that they didn't even know existed. I know standing here today that God has opened horizons or broadened my horizons to things that I never dreamed were possible. Before I came to Christ, I lived in a very narrow, tunnel-visioned world. I saw things only from this perspective, and I thought I knew a lot. But as I gave my life to Christ and as the Apostle Paul asked God to forgive him and believe in Jesus Christ, and as a person becomes new in Christ, all of a sudden those blinders are taken off and God opens the door for you. And as Isaiah said, Lord, here I am, send me. I've become your slave. What will you have me do? And he ushers in a whole new arena of how to live. I've got to do things I never would dream were possible. I got to meet people and, to, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that I never would have had access to. I've got to stand on sidelines of professional sporting events or be in a locker room or get dug out or fly on charter planes or riding a train through the Alps speaking to an executive with a major oil company and telling them about Jesus Christ. I've got to meet people and do things and say things and share with people that I never thought I'd ever have access to in my life. The Christian life isn't a narrow life. We are set apart. Our, our, our horizons are expanded. If we just recognize and understand what God would have us do for him in this lifetime. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. And you sit there and go, yeah, but that's you. I said, but well, I'm no different than you. We're, none of us are no, any different than Paul or Saul of Tarsus. None of us are any different. The only thing that's different maybe about me than you is this. I remember distinctly saying, Lord, you know what? Use me. Do with me whatever you want to do. Open whatever doors you want to open. And in all humility, and keep my feet on the ground, that I never forget that I'm here as your representative and as your emissary. I'm here to tell people about you, not to gain an audience for myself. See, he was a preacher of the word of God. He recognized that the, the word of God, he was set apart for the gospel of God. It is not man's idea, it is God's idea. It was God's plan, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all throughout the Old Testament, God has promised to send a Savior into the world. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55, uh, Psalm 23, read them and understand that this has been God's plan from the very beginning. 
That's why when people say, well, isn't there any other way? No, there's no other way. It's been the way that God has ordained before he even created mankind when he knew that we would choose to, to turn in rebellion against him. From the very beginning of creation, God has chosen to send a Savior into the world, and his name is Christ the Lord. See, it's not our idea. This isn't the gospel of men, the philosophy of men, the ideas of men. The ideas of mankind fill books and books of philosophy that all they do is lead people further and further from God. He is a preacher of the word of God. He came to preach the word of God. Notice what it says. It was promised beforehand. And notice this word, concerning. It's concerning his son. It's an important word. Because the word concerning comes from a preposition peri, which P-E-R-I, where we get words like perimeter, for example. It means to encircle. And basically what I get out of is this. Of all the philosophies in the world on how to be right with God, the gospel of God takes Jesus Christ and he encircles Jesus and says he is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only way that a man can come unto the Father. He is the only way of salvation by no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus. He takes all the other philosophies in the world and all the other religions of the world and all the other ideas of men and he encircles Jesus and says, focus your attention on him and him alone. In Hebrews 1, we read the same thing, that it's his son. The essence of the message of salvation where man can be right with God is Jesus Christ and him alone. That's why when you say his name, people cringe. When somebody stands before an audience and says, I want to give credit to Jesus Christ, my Lord, the audience, you can hear them get uptight in the back of the hair and their neck stands up and they just go, can't you just say God? Why? Because if you say God, then any of us sitting here can interpret God any way that we want. And we will feel a lot more comfortable with you. But when you say Jesus, it takes away all those doubts. It takes away that interpretation problem. When you say Jesus, people get a little bit upset. And to me, that's probably greatest evidence that he was given a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and earth that he is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus, there's something about that name. Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. See, Jesus Christ, he was a preacher of the gospel. He came to preach the gospel. Isn't it wonderful when you think about all the different things that are in the world today, but Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel message? He was also a missionary. Notice in verses 5 through 7. He was also a missionary through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. I like this. You know, and I say it often, I'll continue to say it until we all understand it and there's never any question in our minds again, but if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You're either a saint or you ain't. That's all there is to it. And there's nothing you need to do and there's no miracles you need to perform and you don't have to get any letters of authenticity from any church government body. You are a saint or you ain't. And the only reason that we're saints is because we have trusted in Jesus Christ and in him alone for our forgiveness of sin and our salvation. I like that. You are called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, Paul was a missionary. He was sent to tell others about Jesus Christ. He was sent to tell them what had happened in his own life. He was sent to be a testimony to them. Say, you know what, I don't understand every theological doctrine and deep truth, and neither do I, but I'll tell you this, but I do know one thing, that the day that I invited Jesus Christ into my life and asked for forgiveness of my sin, from that day forward, I've never been the same. And you can say whatever you want, and you can try to argue with me that, you know, it's this, that, or the other thing, but I'm telling you exactly what has happened in my life. Jesus Christ changed my life. And Paul said the same thing. On the road to Damascus, I don't understand it, but I'll tell you this, but I've met forgiveness, and I found mercy, and Jesus Christ changed my life. Now, the third thing, and we'll go kind of quickly on this, is that Paul's concern, he begins to demonstrate for others. He demonstrated his concern for those who are in Rome, and it kind of shows his pastor's heart. Part of his calling is a heart for people. He's concerned about people. He cares about what's going on in their life. But he was thankful for them. Notice that. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Stop and gather that for a second. He was grateful for them. He, he was uh, thankful for them. <coughs> Isn't that great truth? And you know why he was thankful for them? He was thankful for them because they were bold in sharing what Christ had done in their life to those around them when they got home after having experienced forgiveness in Christ. He was grateful for them. He was thankful for them. When was the last time you thanked God for someone in your life whose boldness and their faith opened the door for you to then talk about spiritual things? Maybe with a family member, maybe with a friend, maybe with a co-worker, maybe with a teammate. When was the last time you praised God for the boldness of someone who went before you to pave the way so that you and then in turn can share what God has done in your life as well? We need to be praising God and being thankful for people who have boldness of faith to open the door. Man, I have found myself in positions many times thanking God for people that went before me that opened the door that I could now go in and share the gospel of God, Jesus Christ, with those who would listen. And all you need to do is be in any kind of ministry work where the doors are closed and you can't get in and it's only through the miraculous intervention of God that a door will open up and the boldness of someone in their faith that allows you the privilege of being able to go in and share the gospel. That's a wonderful truth. When was the last time you thanked God for those people? Paul says, I just want to let you know, I thank God continually for you. You know why? Because when I get to see you, and that's my prayer, but when I get there, you have already opened the door for me to be able to stand and share great spiritual truths with you. Thank you that I don't have to come and do everything myself. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your testimony in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, when I watch the Rams game and I watch the Super Bowl and I see a guy like Kurt Warner, when, a, when an interviewer, announcer says to him, oh, first things first, let's talk about that touchdown play. And he says, no, first things first, let's talk about Jesus and Jesus Christ because it's Jesus Christ and him alone is the reason that I'm here to proclaim to you what has happened on a football field. You think anybody will care what happens on a football field through eternity? You think anybody will even remember? I mean, they may remember because it's the only one they ever won, but they may remember. But, but, you know, think about it. You know, who won the Super Bowl eight years ago? Who was the MVP? Who won the World Series 20 years ago, 15 years ago, last year? You know what? That stuff passes and it fades away. And God continually reminds me, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be involved in those industries, but I've never forgotten that, you know what? It's only the Word of God that lasts forever. It's only the souls of men and women that last forever. 
that will either be in heaven for eternity or hell for eternity. And that's all that this is all about. It's to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus so that no one will be without excuse before God. They heard, they choose to rebel, or they choose to accept. But that's what we're here to do, to proclaim the name of Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. He was thankful for them. And we need to be praying and praising God and thanking God for men who stand up and say, look, because Kurt Warner talks about Jesus, it may give you and me an opportunity to talk about Jesus to somebody who's now listening to the game. When they say, what's this Jesus thing? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've been waiting for the right opportunity. Now's a good time, amen? That's good stuff. We miss all these things. We're so busy just doing our thing that we miss what we're here to do. Paul didn't. He was called to be an apostle. He was thankful. He prayed for them on a regular basis. He prayed before he got there. What a great, great example for all of us. Let me just share this truth with you. We are commissioned to tell others about Jesus. That in order to do that, we need to be praying for those who will go before us and maybe pave the way and be grateful and thankful, but we also need to be praying that God would prepare their hearts beforehand to receive his message. We need to be praying. You've got somebody in your family that you go, man, they're just, they're just not listening. I ask you a question. How much do you pray for them? You have an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, life-changing, transforming, eternal life with the person that you love and care for. You better be praying ahead of time that God would open their hearts and their eyes and their ears to hear his truth. That he would be preparing them ahead of time so that you will know the right time to share them with them the words. The words that will change their heart. The words that will change their life. The words that will cause them to be born again, the very word of God. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He loved them. He loved them. He goes, I long to see you in order to, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. He loved them. You know what the spiritual gift was that he wanted to impart to them? The spiritual gift that God had given them to teach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, what he, you know how he demonstrated his love? He demonstrated his love in that he preached the word of God. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He didn't kind of soft sell it because they were guilty and they were dying in their sin and they didn't want to hear that. He spoke the truth and he spoke it in love and he preached the Word of God. When a preacher doesn't want to preach the Word of God anymore, they become clergymen or administrators or directors of operations or, you know, whatever. Administrators, I don't know, whatever they become. I mean, when you stop and you think about it, if you don't love preaching the Word of God anymore, then get out of ministry. Because we have been called to preach the Word of God. He demonstrated His love in that He preached the Word of God. Why? Because it's the Word of God that changes lives. It's the Word of God that's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the Word of God that reveals how a person isn't right with God and how they can be right with God. It's the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And we need to recognize that and understand that and hold those who stand in, in the pulpits of this country and hold them accountable to doing what God has called them to do. And if they don't want to preach the Word of God, then find a place where someone is preaching the Word of God. 
Paul loved these people. And he demonstrated his love in that he said, I can't wait to come and impart this spiritual gift to you. The gift that God has given me to teach the Word of God. And not only that, but notice what he said. And that while I'm there, I may be encouraged with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith. You ever hear people say, well, what do you have to go to church for? Or why should Christians gather together? Because the Bible says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near where Jesus will return. The purpose of gathering together is, you know what? We should be an encouragement to one another. We should be building each other up, lifting each other up, causing each other to be excited about our faith. When we come together, whether it's here or in small groups or whatever, and we share what God is doing in our life and how God has changed the life of someone you've been praying for and how they received Christ and their life is radically different and changed because of it, man, that gets you so excited you can't wait to break that huddle and get back out on the field and go about the business that God's called us to do. The devil wants nothing more than Christians to isolate themselves from one another. I will guarantee you, every, it's like almost every time you have problems getting to church. You can get to a restaurant, you can get to a movie, you can get anywhere you want to go, sporting event, you can get anywhere, but you know what, when it comes time to go into church or go into a small group or go into Bible study, it's like, oh, I can't get a babysitter, oh, this fell apart, oh, I'm getting stuck at work, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's like, isn't it, well, get a clue. No kidding. The enemy doesn't want us to go where we will be reinforced for the battle that we're in. Man, isn't it amazing? But Paul said this, I can't wait to get there. Because when I get there, we're going to encourage each other. I'm going to teach you the truth of the Word of God, and then as I see God changing lives among you, I'm going to get excited about it. Man, you know what? We're just going to feed off each other. This is good stuff. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, indebted. Indebted, we're, we're, we're in trouble. Oh, I'm in trouble. And two, well, two quick things. Okay, he was indebted to them. He was indebted to them. Why was he in, what does it mean to be indebted? Because he was given the truth of the gospel and he was now indebted to all men. He couldn't keep that to himself. How selfish can we be if we've come to know Christ and we've been set free from sin, and our horizons have been broadened, and we see the wonderful world that God has for us, and the joy that we have, and the peace that we have, and the contentment that we have, how selfish can we be not to share that with someone in our life who we know is miserable, who we know is lost, who we know is on the road to hell and judgment by God, for the world has already been condemned. How selfish can we be not to realize how indebted we are to all mankind? Jesus Christ changed Paul's life. And he says that now I am indebted to all men so that they too can come to faith in Christ so that their life can be changed as well. And he was eager. Man, he couldn't wait. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to get here every Sunday. Ask my wife, man, I toss and turn, I'm up, I'm ready to go. I'm like, what time is it? It's only two. Well, you think anyone's there yet? <laughs> oh, no, that's right, it's not 9.18. Um, you know. <laughs> so I see you're just as excited to be here as me. He was eager. He said, I can't wait to get there. I did a retreat last week, man, the first session. You should have seen the look on those people's faces. Woo! 
say, hey, we're here, let's go. Uh, man, I didn't know what hit him. That was good, though. That was fun. <laughs> the word, man, the word of God, boom, man, you should have seen it. Boom, boom, boom. They loved it. That was good. You know why? Because there's a hunger for the word of God. There's a hunger for truth. And I'll tell you what, if you will allow God, through his spirit, to teach you his truth, and then to apply it, it'll be, there will be no questions in your mind why guys like Martin Luther and John Wesley went and were used by God to turn the world upside down. Now, I'll tell you what. I just want the little world that God's given me turned upside down because I am totally sold out to Jesus Christ. How about you? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. We're just looking forward to the truths that you have for us and those things that we can apply. We just thank you for Paul and the transformation that took place in his life. A man who was hell-bent on destroying Christianity, who hated Jesus Christ, and yet he found mercy and forgiveness, not condemnation nor judgment, because you had called him, you had chosen him to be an instrument of yours. You had set him apart to preach the gospel of God, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to tell the world that he came to die on the cross in their place, to tell the world that he rose again three days later, to tell the world that he has a, the authority and the power to give eternal life and to offer forgiveness for all those who confess their sin and turn to him and believe in him. To tell the world that he sits at the right hand of God today and one day he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. And that every one of us, whosoever would believe, may have eternal life and not be prosecuted or persecuted or condemned. God, we just, what a great message. We're in debt to all mankind. We're eager to leave here today and to begin to share that message. We're thankful and prayerful for those who have the boldness in their testimony to share regardless of whether people want to hear, to pave the way so that we have an opportunity to talk to others about Jesus. God, we just thank you and we praise you, and it's in Christ's name. Amen. And please do me a huge...